Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great. Uh, Ramadan Kareem. Thank you. And uh, of course, your favorite holiday. Happy International Workers Day. Yeah. Power to the people. Power to the workers. Uh, we've got a big show today that I know you're super excited about because we're going to be talking about, I, I think, probably one of your favorite topics in the world, civil society <laughs> and like the political movements uh, of which you're a part. And so in this episode, we're going to be going through the history and the political prospects and all of that stuff, diving deep into all of that. But before that, of course, we have to get to the news. Um, so we had this sort of mystery fuel spill south of GA, south of, uh, close to the GA power plant, uh, but like just a little bit south of that. It started on Wednesday, peaked on Thursday. It contaminated like three kilometers on the beach and a bunch of uh, in the water off the coast. But we have no idea still how much there was or who did it. Electricité du Liban and car power ship. Uh, both deny responsibility. The contractor who does fuel offloading to the GA power plant, including a recent fuel offloading, also denied responsibility. The energy ministry even weighed in uh, saying we tested it. It's not the fuel that EDL uses. They're not at fault. But they didn't say who it is. We don't know who it is. And we, we're like, this is one of those things that it should be very, very easy for us to figure out who it is. Nobody's figured out who it is yet, for sure. We don't know. It's just like a mystery environmental disaster. Speaking of environmental disasters, the Burj Hamoud landfill is likely to expand. Now, this was a landfill that was an emergency measure created back in 2015. And this week, the environment minister, the new environment minister, Fadi Shreisati, came out and said, well, like, it's probably going to expand again because the other option is to have garbage piling up on the streets. And that is unacceptable. This, of course, still has to go through cabinet, so we'll see what happens. But it appears as though, like, they're moving in this direction. Uh, <laughs> another interesting thing to come from Jersati this week on Friday, he told my colleague Temur Asari at the Daily Star that uh, he's only relying, quote, only relying on the international community. I'm not relying on the government. This is a member of the government saying I'm not relying on the government. He went on to say that they gave me one of the lowest budgets uh, for 2019. And that this shows that uh, there's no seriousness from our decision makers, which is a pretty strong statement coming mm. from a minister himself. Uh, clearly, you know, Jurisati is done with his honeymoon, right, as a minister. The happy talk on all of these nice things that he was saying and, and the glow of being a new minister has worn off. Now it's time to get down to some very tough decisions about landfills and and realizing that, oh, your budget is like tiny. <laughs> it's like $9 million. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the reality check. The environment ministry is not well-funded. Surprise. Yeah. Very quickly, we had something uh, interesting happen at the military tribunal. The military prosecutor, Peter Germanos, filed charges against Ahmad Osman, who is the head of the internal security forces. This is a really, really big deal. He claimed that Osman was violating a judicial decision by failing to heed judicial orders from Germanos, as, as well as giving permits, I guess, for wells and construction and, and various things that, like that. Now, you may remember about a month ago, Germanos also filed suit against the ISF information branch for allegedly rebelling against his authority, uh, leaking information related to uh, ongoing investigations, stuff like that. And both of these things are sort of viewed in, in this political prism mm. of 
oh, it's FPM because Germanos is considered to be an FPM guy against the future movement. Imad Osman is considered to be a future movement guy. Yeah. And the information branch, for better or for worse, is considered to be allied with the future movement. And and so maybe there's nothing political about it. It's entirely possible that like the everything about this is above board. Peter Germanos is doing, you know, just doing his job. But you can't just do your job here in Lebanon. Every single action that somebody takes is going to be analyzed. Well, did they do that because that was their party, because that was their sect, because of, of some nefarious reason? And honestly, we don't know here. Right now, it's being viewed as an FPMF uh, future war, but w- we don't know. Yeah, to me, what's scary about this is that this, these things really only happen when there are tensions between parties. So the scary thing is that when these things should be happening, like people holding each other accountable, and the political sponsors of these people prevent these things from happening, this is one, one aspect of this large-scale corruption that we have. So it's a bit worrying that we only talk about them in these political terms, but to me, this only sounds realistic. This is some form of FPM pressure on future movement. Right, right. Uh, and, and speaking of wars between the political parties, we also had this huge dust-up between the Progressive Socialist Party and Hezbollah. Uh, this has been going on for a few weeks, uh, but a couple of weeks ago, Jubilat really kicked up a lot of dust by saying that the Sheba Farms is not Lebanese. The, this is, uh, the Sheba Farms is an area, a disputed area on the border between Lebanon and the Jolan Heights, which is occupied now by Israel. And Jumblat said, oh, no, it's not Lebanese. Really, it is sort of like a huge statement to make. Um, and the underlying implication is that Hezbollah doesn't really have a good reason to keep holding on to its weapons because one of the main disputed areas is not Lebanese. And, yeah, and, and just to explain, Jumblat's argument is that after the liberation of the South in year 2000, the Syrian regime kind of orchestrated this thing to make Shabha Farms Lebanese so that they keep kind of a reason, justification for them to be in Lebanon because if the Israelis are out, what are the Syrians doing here, right? They, can, they cannot be protecting national security if the country is liberated. This is Jumblat's argument. But what, something I didn't know is that in 2006, when they had this national dialogue, one of the main items was to agree that Shabha Farms are Lebanese, and that's, that's how we're going to be dealing with them, and no discussion about in the future. This is why Jumblat's statement is really inflammatory. Right, and, and Hassan Nasrallah came out in a speech this week as well, and, and basically said as much, you know, like he said that the Lebanese state says that, like, this was an agreed thing, that the Shabha Farms is Lebanese. That is the agreed line through many governmental policy statements um, it has been decided on. And, and, and then he added, at any talk other than that from someone who used to believe it was Lebanese and now doesn't, doesn't have any value at all. Uh, wow. We're basically calling Jumblat out for flip-flopping on this because, and, and, and Nasrallah is totally 100% right here. There, there's like just undeniable proof video of Jumblat multiple times in the past saying that the Shaba Farms is Lebanese. Yeah, it's not the first time he's accused of flip-flopping, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, this brouhaha is happening against the backdrop of another fight between Jumblat and Hezbollah, and that's over Aindara. Now, as far as this goes, I don't really understand everything that's going on. I I don't think that most people do, but here here's a quick, like, outline of, of what we know. Uh <laughs> So back on March 26th, Wa'al Abu Fawud revoked a permit for a company to build a large cement factory there. Now, this company was controlled by Pierre Fatouche, who is the brother of the former MP, Nicolas Fatouche. Um, so they're very politically connected. Um, the, the permit had been given by 
Hussein al-Hajj Hassan, who was Abu Fawr's predecessor at the industry ministry. And, and this pissed off Hezbollah. They claim that this is because, well, Hajj Hassan had given the permit, right? So we're, we're not going to flip-flop on this issue. We said the permit was fine, and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, they also say, you know, that Fatouche's operation was above board legally. And, and actually, he won at the Shurva Council recently. And then also, apparently, Jumblat had reached out prior to Hezbollah asking if the party would have a problem with revocation, and they said that, that they would. So what gives Jumblat? Why, why, would, why would you even reach out to us to ask us about this if you were just going to go ahead and revoke it anyway? That it, it, To them, it seemed like a snub. Now, this may or may not be all of it, um, and there are lots and lots of rumors flying around about, you know, ties to Damascus and ties between Fatouche and Hezbollah, for instance. And also, you know, just what are the interests of Walid Jumblat uh, uh, as far as having another cement factory in his on his turf, basically. Mm-hmm. But we don't know any of this stuff, right? Um, and so I, I'm hoping that somebody will be very enterprising and go out and, like, really find out what's going on here, dig, dig down to it. Because basically everyone that I talk to believes these two issues are very much related, uh, the Sheba Farms issue and the Aindara issue. And it seems as, uh, to, to most people, to most analysts, that Jumblat is using the Sheba Farms thing to, get what, to try to get what he wants at Aindara. Yeah, it seems like a very complicated maneuver. But uh, one thing to mention here as well is that the cement factory has been targeted by protests and by a consistent campaign over the last few months by people, residents of the area of, of um, this part of Alay. Yeah, it's very unpopular. It's very unpopular. And, you know, there is a popular movement against it. And this might be also a factor that um, Jumblat considered when making his decision, because you have to remember that Jumblat is seen as the lord in this area. And whether he protects the environment or not is a very important factor because the people in Shuf and Alay really care about the environment and really take this very seriously. So this is another factor to consider. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Hezbollah, Nasrallah came out in that same speech and said, hey, bankers, you got to pay your fair share. Yeah, this is very interesting. Nasrallah was really explicit about it. He told he addressed the bankers directly and he said, you have to claim responsibility and, you know, share the price, the cost of this so that we can overcome this crisis. Otherwise, we will have an economic disaster. And he told them clearly, you should lower the interest rates on the public debt which in majority is owned by the banks themselves. So he said, it's not, we're not only talking about future interest, future debt, we're talking about past debt as well. So this means debt restructuring, which we have been talking about. And he's basically paving the way. It's one of the things that we expected, right? In the last episode, that politicians would be paving the way for this specific reform, which is a deal between the state and the banks to kind of reschedule or swap bonds to make the interest lower. Right, and speaking of that, process, cabinet started talking about the budget on Tuesday, and things seemed to start out pretty smoothly. They, they met four times this past week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And by Thursday, they were ready to approve, word was, 25 out of the 62 articles. Uh, seems like a pretty good start, right? But then <laughs> ministers got hung up on a few issues, and there were some fights uh, that supposedly broke out. Um, one of the issues that ministers got hung up on was raising taxes on interest from banking deposits from 7 to 10%. Also, there were reports that there was an issue over raising the top corporate in- income tax rate to 25%. All of these things, by the way, we covered last week in our budget episode. But apparently, these are contentious issues, and Cabinet was supposed to meet both Saturday and Sunday, but then 
Like at the last minute, they decided they weren't going to. And instead, they are going to beat Monday at noon, which uh, to me, it seems as though, and there's, there's a lot of various bullshit reasons that are being floated out there. But to me, it just sounds like, oh, well, these, uh, they're running into some hard issues and they have to like take, take a beat uh, to look at them a little bit more carefully before they meet again. And unsurprisingly, most of these issues, as reported in the media, has been related to have been related to the banks, right? The the articles that would affect the banks in one way or another, with the exceptional income tax rate that is kept for the banks at seventy percent. Although the corporate income tax rate was suggested to be raised to twenty five percent in this budget, and another thing would it was the what you mentioned, the interest on bank deposits, which. Uh, according to Al Akbar, a lot of people in the cabinet are uh, saying we should we accept it on the condition of giving an exception to banks, so the deposits owned by banks would be exempted from this tax. So basically, the interests of the banks again are really one of the major obstacles, and it's seen as you know we don't want to make the banks pay twice, once through the debt restructuring deal that is really inevitable, and another one is through the taxes. Yeah, and and on the other issue, uh, not just the banks, but then just the people. Uh, we also have issues on that. We we had issues on that this past week. Lots of people aren't happy. Uh, the General Confederation of Lebanese Workers, which is sort of like the umbrella group of Lebanese unions, um, held a three-day strike uh, last week. Uh, many public sector employees joined in, reportedly including people from EDL, Ogero, the Regi, um, some of the water establishments, various municipal workers, and, and of course, military retirees and state workers are unhappy about some of these measures that we talked about last week. You know, veterans losing something, you know, pretty significant 3% on their pensions um, and, and a bunch of freebies as well. Many civil servants are also concerned about losing pay. For instance, those who are going from like 16 months of salary paid in a year down to 12 or 13, and as well as uh, potentially losing benefits. These are real concerns that that people have and they're taking seriously and they are striking and protesting as well about this. Yeah, but let's mention this. These are the most privileged people in the civil service uh, sector. This is what people perceive as the high class of public sector workers in Lebanon, right? The military pensioners are much more privileged than especially people who are who are officers and not like uh, low rank soldiers are considered much more privileged than other people who retire from any other sector. And people who get 16 salaries a year are really exceptions now. And they are only in specific institutions. And these are the institutions protesting now or going on strike. So this is not like the kind of austerity that hurts the largest kind of group of people. This is why we're not seeing, for example, a lot of teachers in the street. We're not seeing the people who were mobilized for years and years for the demanding the ranks and salary scale. We're not seeing them now in the streets because these people's rights and benefits were not touched. It's only what is considered the most privileged in the public sector. And speaking of people being unhappy, this is sort of our our, our big topic, right? Like, <laughs> like not just a narrow slice of people being unhappy, but lots of people being unhappy. Yeah. And what spawned, you know, the the civil society movement, especially the, the politically aware civil society movement uh, that we saw contest the elections last year. And I, I'm excited about this episode, of course, because this is your sort of baby. But I'm yeah. also kind of excited because I get to play the villain in all of this. I get to be the bad guy in, in this episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast and, and basically 
shit all over civil society. <laughs> Piss away any goodwill that I might have made in doing this program. And, and, and then you get to explain why I am totally misguided and wrong. Yeah, and I'm not really used to being the advocate, you know. I'm, I'm used to being the one, one of the people who are, you know, criticizing or pointing at the gaps. But yeah, let's get to it. So basically, let's start with, with just an overview of what exists, right? A lot of people think of civil society as like one actor, uh, one social force. But in reality, it's more like a lot of people, like thousands of people who identify as activists in one way or another across the country and who have informal networks and groups that they are part of. Most political groups are informal. They're not registered, they're not parties, and they are non-ideological. So among all of the groups that are kind of in, civil, in the civil society movement, we only have three official parties that are significant. One of them is the newly founded Sab'a, and another one is the one founded by Sharb al-Nahas called Muwatinun wa Muwatinat fi Dawla, Citizens in a State. And also recently, the Lebanese Communist Party has kind of joined this movement. It has taken a very solid stance against the political elite in general and waged the election against them, the municipal election and the parliamentary election. So they can be understood as part of this movement. So these groups, as I mentioned, are not really ideological and they are kept together not by policy plans. They're mostly kept together by personal connections. And that's the case even in some official groups or the party Sabah, for example, which is a party that literally has no ideology and it re- rejects uh, the left and right kind of spectrum, saying it's part of the past. So it basically really practically means neoliberal populism, but we can talk about that in another episode. But in general, ideology and ideas are not what kind of keep people together in these groups. So in 2018, we had the parliamentary elections and a lot of these groups were part of Kulluna Watani, the list that had 66 candidates across the country running against the political elites uh, altogether. The situation now looks much less unified, obviously, because we had elections, we need to be pragmatic and be together. Now it's mostly groups kind of trying to focus on themselves internally, developing their, their own ranks and also creating some networks. So we have many initiatives trying to create networks among a lot of individuals and groups. And also, you only got one seat in parliament in those elections. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a big failure and we'll talk about it in a second. Don't worry, we will talk about the failures, Ben. Just be patient. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of what exists today. But one thing to keep in mind is how we got here, right? How we got to this situation. A lot of people take for granted the idea that we have a civil society or like a social force that is opposed to the ruling class in Lebanon. And with that come very high expectations, like the fact that, you know, we haven't achieved anything. And we hear this all the time, right? You have been protesting for years. What have you achieved? Nothing. But the presence of this kind of anti-establishment frontier or, or, or force is not really something to be taken for granted because it's still really in the infancy phase. This is because Lebanon really has recently emerged from the civil war. The 90s is really recent. And by the end of the civil war, we had really a complete inhalation of secular democratic kind of political forces. The Lebanese Communist Party was very weak. Other uh, leftist organizations were also very weak. And politics was really dominated by establishment parties and warlords and businessmen. So what continued after the civil war was the organizations that were created during the civil war to cater for people's needs, mostly NGOs that are service oriented and not really political. And during the 90s, we really didn't have any serious political activism except for the union movement for a while before it was really smashed by the ruling elites. And by the end of the 90s and early 2000s, we saw the rise of the anti-Hariri based on economic policy, but also pro-Syrian regime kind of left-wing 
which the Communist Party kind of uh, adhered to also Harakat uh, Shab was born in Beirut uh, founded by Najah Wakim and is the best example of what kind of opposition we had to the government on the other hand the term political activist and people identifying themselves as such was really brought here by FPM people mostly people who were protesting against the Syrian regime while Aoun was in exile as well as people protesting for the release of Samir Jaja who was in jail during this time So basically for this period of time, until before 2005, this was what political activists really meant, being against the Syrian regime, but it was really not as open and as public as it is today. But then we had a very, very big milestone. In 2005, after Hariri's assassination, we had a boom in civil society with the Cedars revolution against the Syrian regime, which ended in, in the Syrian troops withdrawing from Lebanon. And this was really a moment of, of popular uprising. It, it was real. People felt that a new era was beginning and a huge portion of, of progressive forces and progressive people were joining in this March 14 current. And here we saw the rise of kind of the political NGOs, the professional civil society activists. And these are NGOs who focus on civil rights and human rights. And now they c- could work publicly and not underground anymore. And many politically motivated youths and, and independent, uh, you know, high educated elites, etc. were joining in these groups. And uh, th- this is the time also when I started getting involved uh, around 2008-2009. And this form of professional civil society activism is really what continued to be the most dominant one for the following 10 years, so until 2015. And we had a very interesting build up in these 10 years. Because in the first half of it, until 2011, we had a huge disillusionment with the political class of this country and the divide that was ruling politics, which is March 8 versus March 14. Especially that it was really determining everything in the country. We had anti-government protests and we had actually a mini civil war in 2008, the May 7 clashes and then the Doha agreement and, and then the elections and the post-election government and nothing was achieved for the country only economic obstruction and political obstruction and stalemate and really it was a very devastating time because there was nothing positive happening yeah the syrians were gone aun was back jaja was out all of this stuff had happened but yet still the politicians could not get their fucking act together exactly and this disillusionment plus the inspiration from the arab spring that was happening at the time there was the rise of anti-establishment sentiments across the, the country. And they were manifested in the protests that happened, the movement for the overthrowing of the sectarian regime, Eskhat Nizam Taifi. And this was the first time really that such a large-scale movement puts all of the politicians in Lebanon in one basket and saying, you are all to blame, you are all you know incompetent and corrupt and sectarian, etc. And we want to get rid of all of you. So there were thousands participating, and at some point it was estimated that more than 20,000 were in the street. It was a big kind of opportunity to recruit a lot of people into kind of more radicalized and more progressive politics, especially people who were born in the 80s and late 80s and 90s, like myself, who had no opportunity earlier to be seriously involved in any kind of political activism. So this was a very, very important milestone. And it basically signaled the entrance of civil society as a political force into public discourse. I remember the media was for the first time asking civil society about like their opinions and their, their demands, although they understood it in a very weird way, which is all civil society is one thing. At the same time, they were actually asking about it like and reporting on it. What does civil society want? What, what are the demands, etc.? This was really the first time. It was also an opportunity for the left that was... The left wing of the March 14 current, which was completely marginalized and it, all, of, all, of this, all of its demands for a secular Lebanon were kind of put on hold 
to raise these demands and put them on top of the priorities. However, for a lot of reasons, and we will add one um, paper to the description of this episode that gives more insight on this movement specifically, the movement faded away with no, no th- with nothing really achieved, um, although it continued in different forms and at a much smaller scale in 2013 and 14 in protest against the extension of the parliament mandate. And then we had the other major milestone, maybe the biggest one in my opinion, which is the protest movement in 2015. This movement was triggered by a garbage crisis, right? Garbage was overflowing from dumpsters because Suklin was not collecting because the landfill in Naami, south of Beirut, was closed. However, it really turned into a large anti-establishment protest in the country with a lot of people joining. At some point, it was estimated up to 100,000, but I would say up to 60 or 70,000 people in the street in Marty Square in the summer of 2015 and it was a much wider circle of people who were participating in this movement compared to previous movements so it it blew up this activist community thing it it reached a lot of people who for the first time were taking a stance against you know political leaders that they had supported or people who were not politicized at all and for the first time were joining this movement well yeah and and also just for the first time you had like literally garbage piling up in the streets people were burning the garbage so even if you didn't have garbage on your street you could smell it everywhere you went and so like this it, it was this moment where all of this all these political failures finally reached people on a very physical visceral level exactly and this meant that people who identify as activists are no longer you know the highly educated very progressive artists and writers and journalists etc who hang out in hamra and you know are all like extremely progressive compared to the rest of the country these are people from all kind of ideological ideological backgrounds and they have all kind of ideas but what brings them together is that they're really fed up with this political class and how incompetent and unable it is to rule the country and manage relatively simple thing which is just solid waste so clearly this means that these new people will have new frameworks to be involved in and we saw a lot of new informal groups being born in this during this time, including actually um, many, most of the groups that formed the Kulonawatani coalition, if not all of them, and two of the three anti-establishment parties, Sharb al-Nahas's party and Sabah. Sabah, for example, for those who don't know, was re- founded really just after the protest. Uh, it was an initiative by Jad Dagher and he got in touch with activists who were mobilizing, who were the primary mobilizers in, in the Tlait Rihetko movement and they decided to uh, to create this party. And 2016 was basically the first test for this momentum that had been accumulating with these protest movements, with the municipal elections. We had the first major electoral battle against uh, this, the ruling class. In Beirut, we had Beirut Medinati being formed of independents, most of them technocrats, and being supported by most independent activists, except for Sharb al-Nahas, who just decided to go with his own list, and it was a miserable fail. But anyway, we had quite a good result, which was around 40% of the vote. And most of this vote came from actually all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, supporters of different political parties voted for, you know, a municipality that was independent, that was technocratic rather than voting for the political classes municipality. Because on the other list, it was really all of the parties combined, except for maybe one or two parties who said we're not really involved in this all of the parties had the same, had candidates on this one list. So all of their political antagonisms vanished and they were all against Beirut Medinati. So it was a very important moment, not only because a good result, 40% was achieved, although no seats were won because it's a majoritarian system, but also because it was the first time that a lot of us realized, oh, 
we can wage electoral politics as well. We can we can play this game that we never thought about it. We can we didn't know that our struggle could take electoral forms, uh, because this seemed a bit too far fetched in the future. This seems like something seemed like something that we could do in another country, but not in Lebanon. And this is this perspective change was very important for the next few years, because in 2017 we had the elections in the order of engineers. And we won the election in Beirut with Naqabati getting Jad Tabit as the new head of the order. And this seemed like it's working, you know, like we're, we're, we're making gains. And then 2018 came with the parliamentary elections and all of this hope really was kind of smashed to pieces. The defeat of Kulunawatani ranged from embarrassing to acceptable, but it was a big defeat in every district of the country that they, we were running in, except in Beirut, where we got this one seat with Paula Aubian, who we should mention, although she's been, you know, a very effective and good MP, but she was not part of this movement. She kind of, she saw this movement as, as like a popular wave that she should support, but she just rode the wave, right? She's a newcomer to this and she won because she was super popular. As she says, really, she won because she was very famous. And the other area where we had okay results was in Shufan Alay, but we were 3,000 uh, votes short of the quite high threshold of 13,000 votes to get a seat. But in almost other areas, really, in some areas we got 2% of the vote. It was um, a really bad kind of kind of result because a lot of people were expecting high momentum. Yeah, and we, we still had, at that time, we still had a lot of just popular disaffection with the ruling elite. Everybody knew, like, nothing's getting better nothing's really happening they had to delay the elections and we had all of the same problems that were in place so it was thought that oh well maybe just maybe there'll be a big protest vote and then there wasn't massive just failure almost across the board yeah it was a big renewal for the political elite basically so given this given this you know huge build-up to an ultimately very unsatisfying outcome looking forward is is there you know, well, why why did this happen? And looking forward, is there any chance for there to be a different outcome or not? And what are the what are the challenges facing us? I think that's the question we have to get into. Yeah, exactly. So the big question is really, can these forces can independent political activists? Because really, we should stop calling them civil society. It's a very bogus, ambiguous term that doesn't mean anything. Can they achieve anything? Can we basically break through this oligopoly over over power in Lebanon? And here we can distinguish between two set of obstacles. Uh, we have obstacles that are external to these people, external to the movements, related to the system itself. And the most important ones, maybe, the ones that we are always faced by, is first the aspect of Lebanon being a space for proxy politics. We talked about this extensively in an episode called uh, Independent Lebanon with a question mark. And it's a valid point. Uh, Lebanese politics is really very influenced by uh, the regional connections of our political forces. So, for example, Hariri is known to be extremely close to Saudi Arabia. Like Saudi Arabia is known to be the sp- political sponsor and in some cases the financial sponsor of Hariri. In other cases, Hezbollah says very explicitly that all of its money and its political pro- sponsorship, to be honest, is also from Iran. So, and other smaller parties as well have their own connections everyone understands that this is kind of bigger than Lebanon politics and because of that there's a lot of skepticism about our capacity as you know normal Lebanese citizens without these connections to be influencing politics and to be breaking through and this is something that we saw in the elections as well because how did all of this money come to these parties suddenly you know who is funding all of these campaigns it was insane the amount of money being spent as bribes or as you know just normal electoral campaigns and we know that part of that is basically external forces giving money 
this is one aspect of it. The other aspect, which I think is the absolutely most important one, is the fact that we have very solid and stubborn structures of sectarian clientelism in Lebanon. We're talking about people being materially dependent on the ruling uh, elite, on the politicians. Not in the sense of psychological affection, no. People being dependent on these politicians for their access to have the right to work, for example, through state jobs. Because the economy is really bad, it doesn't create good jobs, so people are desperate for a state job. And politicians are using this as a way to, you know, to buy support, basically. Another very important part is the funds that go from the central government to the areas in which politicians have the biggest say. So, for example, a village in Nabatiyye would be worried that if it doesn't um, support Nabih Birri, Nabih Birri would not, for example, channel funds into that village. We're talking about funds like investments, but mostly things related to infrastructure because you know how little the spending on infrastructure is, so everyone is waiting for an opportunity to get some of that money. And we understood during the election that this is the thing that people are most worried about. They're, more, they're worried about not showing their support to the Zaim because this would mean that they would not be beneficiaries of his future, future kind of endeavors in this sense. But you also have direct financial assistance and services provided by welfare networks of political groups, especially Future Movement and Hezbollah. They are the biggest two supporters. And this is really important. People who don't have money to go to a hospital and need to be hospitalized, they call someone from a political party. They might go to their own uh, hospital. They might really just go to a, a hospital that is part of the network of Hezbollah or Hariri. But they might also get their support in being in a private hospital and in, in covering the costs of a private hospital. This is one of the main issues because people think of these kind of services as the most important thing that would determine their political affiliation. And finally, obviously, everyone knows this in Lebanon. Everything is determined by wasta, by favoritism. If you know someone in the state, so if you know someone in a political party, this makes your life much easier, especially if you need some paperwork to be done, which would take weeks or days, depending on who you know. Yeah, it really is incredible when things that usually take a long time are just done in a matter of minutes <laughs> and you realize, oh, that's the power of Wasta, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? Yeah, th- th- so this this hits on, I guess, sort of my, like, my biggest critique of the, like, civil society independent political activist movement, right, which is just that without some sort of more fundamental reform to Lebanon's political economy, you can't possibly compete. And if you are going to compete, you're competing in this field where you're going to be doing, you're going to become the very thing that you're trying to replace. Mm. Like, if if you want to have, like, a huge popular following, then you're going to have to provide those social services. You're going to have to provide those opportunities for education Mm -hmm. and for jobs. You're going to have to provide those WASTA services that the current Zayims do. And so basically, you're going to become the new Zayim. If if you are, without any sort of like more fundamental reform or a, a, Mm. a radical shift in the way that the political economy operates here, you cannot possibly win this game. Yeah, this is the, the really the biggest challenge. And you have a model of what you're saying, people becoming new Zaims and getting to parliament in this way, which is Fuad Mahzoumi in Beirut, right? He has one of the biggest charity institutions. Najib Me'ati before him. Rafi Hariri before him. Exactly. Yeah, this but is a long line. Of, I mean, yeah. I mean, re- most recently in these elections, we saw two new people kind of breaking through. Polaya Obian in a district where she is also, she is very famous, but in a district where it was easiest to win. And Fuad Mahzoumi, who has um, thousands of people benefiting from his charity institution. So I completely agree. But the question is, 
is this really the only way? Because we have to be more creative about this because we might find ways in which we can like uh, create solidarity networks that would empower people without the connection to the za'im. But this would take a lot of effort. We, we will have to have an agenda that says, okay, we want to create these networks in a way that people feel that the power comes through their connections to each other and their solidarity rather than the services being provided by this political leader in return for loyalty. I think this is a major task that we need to be doing. Not everyone agrees among activists. A lot of people are very skeptical of any possibility of going beyond uh, middle class voters in terms of support. But it's a discussion that we must have for sure. And obviously, also, there was a horrible electoral law, you know, put in place by these people in power to keep them yeah. in power and, and just the entrenchment of, you know, sectarianism through like basically all of the other tools of, of the state and of power. So those are like the, the outside external limits and hurdles to overcome for any sort of independent political movement. But there's also a lot of internal problems, right? Indeed, there are too many, basically because we're still in this infancy phase. First of all, the infrastructure is really minimal. If you want to be active in a political group in Lebanon that is independent from the political establishment, you don't have a lot of choices. It's not easy to just join a party. First of all, people don't know about our groups. You know, For example, the group that I'm part of, Lihaqi, is known to a certain circle of people. But when you ask someone who is not political at all, they would say, I've never heard of it. And the only party that is really that has spent so much money on communication and people know about it is Sabah. And Sabah is not a very attractive party to be part of, partly because, you know, it's not clear what it stands for and because of other questions as well. I, I mean, I think it's just hilarious when I first heard about Sabah. Like, I thought, oh, of course, like, Sabah means seven. So that means they've got, like, a platform of seven things. And so I went to their website, like, what are the seven things? I looked all over the <laughs> website trying to figure out what their seven plot things. But literally, it stands for nothing. And it's such a perfect encapsulation of what the party is. Like, literally, Sabah stands for nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously it stands for reform and no corruption and all of these things. But as a political party, it's not like you have the Green and the Labour and the Conservatives. No, it's it's just a party for everyone to create. The purpose of the party officially is to create new political leadership. So for all of these reasons and others as well, people don't have this infrastructure that they can just, you know, join. The Lebanese Communist Party is a party that is operational and has quite a lot of people. At the same time, its its ability to recruit people from different backgrounds is limited because it has a history, it has a lot of stigma against it. It's called the Lebanese Communist Party and it's also related to things like, you know, the position, the previous position in alliance with the Syrian regime that is very controversial to people who are critical of the Syrian regime and for a lot of other reasons. Anyway, the lack of infrastructure is a very important obstacle. Another thing that I've seen being very, very significant is that a lot of groups, including parties and small informal groups, are completely dependent on individuals. What we try to do in the elections, and I have to say this because our experience was very different, we try to have a, a political movement that has absolutely no leaders and has a very horizontal and very like internal democratic structure specifically for this purpose because people are not used to doing collective politics. People who are activists are used to just stating their opinion and uh, and gathering people around them and creating NGOs, etc. and just doing it their own way. So having a collective movement in which they have to you know accept whatever the group is deciding is not something that's very common. Sharb al-Nahas' party is really Sharb al-Nahas' party Sabah's party is really Jad Dagher's party, and I'm not saying that's because he's the current president or the founder. 
also because he's really the main funder of the party. According to financial statements that we have access to, more than 50% of the money that Sabah received came from Jad Dagher himself. And small groups as well also depend on their own like little bosses, mostly men. So this is a main, main obstacle, right? We're not doing politics the right way. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that a lot of these groups are really just sort of like rich people or middle class people with a little bit of extra money basically playing politics. Clearly, there isn't like this huge groundswell of support. Otherwise, we would have seen that in the elections. There is no like huge, you know, popular rally to these people. It's no, it's some people with some extra money who are throwing it around in politics and having some fun for themselves is, is is sort of my impression of a lot of these groups. Yeah, I mean, I agree to a big extent because this is the case for a lot of these so-called activists. However, it's not really all of them. And the people who are most active and most dedicated and they stand for, you know, substantive change are people who are not coming from this kind of perspective. But these people exist as, you know, just people who want to be political leaders, alternative ones to to, uh, to who's currently holding these seats, but have no alternative vision for the country. And we'll talk about that in a second. But as you said, the popular support is a big thing. And what I've seen in the last, you know, seven, eight years is that the idea of having popular support and of waging democratic politics is something that we are so far from in this civil society sphere. In 2011, the movement was to overthrow the sectarian regime and its symbols, which really doesn't mean anything specific because these people are popular politicians who are elected by hundreds of thousands of people. So the idea that we could overthrow them the same way that Egyptians overthrew Mubarak or Tunisians overthrew Ben Ali is, is just doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to this case. And the, in the later movements that we had, we always had this idea that this political class is kind of illegitimate. It's taking over power. It's keeping power because also because of the long and long extensions of the parliament mandate, this rhetoric became very dominant. And democracy itself became kind of a demand. And when we got this demand in 2018, it was a big reality check. And as I mentioned, except for Shufan Alay and in Beirut, where we had local groups organizing everywhere else, it was quite a failure. And still, with that reality check, a lot of activists were like, no, it's because of the fraud, it's because of the irregularities, which were really, really important, but they were not the the big picture. The big picture is simply we could not mobilize enough people to vote for us. So this fraud thing should not be the excuse for us not to face the reality, which is we are not able yet to to infiltrate establishment politics at the local level in every village and every town. Yeah, fraud's important. Combating fraud is important, but that's not the point here. Exactly. And last among these major obstacles is the thing that we've been hinting on during this episode, which is a lot of groups really don't have ideologies. And we're not talking about dogmas. We're talking about simple ideological orientation. And they don't have real visions for the country. Because really the the nature of corruption in Lebanon, how deep-rooted it is in every aspect of public governance, has meant that you know anti-corruption itself became... A vision, but it's not. Everyone is against corruption and rhetoric, right? And everyone, when they reach power, they start doing corruption because this is the way to, to keep support. So just being against corruption is not a vision to change the country. It's, the country is ruled by specific interests. And we've, ta- we've been talking about economic policies and how biased they are towards a certain a class of people, specifically the bankers and the very rich. And this is something that should be in the you know at the heart of this vision. It's not. It's really bad, and especially in days like these, 
where you know economic questions right rise to the surface and we have a big economic crisis that we have all of these you know so-called independent political activists who are not talking about this and they're saying oh you should crack down on this little public sector institution that employs five people but they're not really active what the hell are you talking about we have the large-scale corruption called the accumulation of this high interest public debt you know this is something that you should be talking about the corruption of giving contracts to the large companies that are politicians friends etc the policies that are always consistently favoring specific sectors of the economy and specific classes over the rest of us yeah politics means taking a stand on big issues and rallying people to that cause not trying to like say oh there's these tiny things that everybody of course can agree on exactly and sensitive things like social policies like lgbt like refugee rights like how to achieve gender equality or the kafala system things like that they also a lot of groups don't have positions on them and they just you know think of these things as technical matters well they're not they determine who the hell you are as a political movement if you stand for if you are a progressive political movement you stand for social economic and environmental rights If you only stand for the environmental rights because it's easy and everyone supports you, then you're just an opportunistic person. Precisely, yeah. So let me pull back then and ask you this million-dollar question then from all this. Because from what you've told me, I thought I was going to be the villain, but I think actually maybe you were the villain in this episode. <laughs> for, for what you said, like it just it sounds to me like the challenges are insurmountable, that there really is very little space for hope as far as any sort of independent political movement goes. However, my guess is, since you are still active with Lihaki, that you don't believe that. You think that there is hope. 100%. I think that we should have hope, and I think that change is the only natural outcome, right? Because change has been happening throughout Lebanon's history. Very dramatic changes. Every time we talk about historic, a historical figure, people listening should be thinking, well, where's that party now? Where's that figure now? they might be completely irrelevant or they might be the most important uh, political force in the country. So we must never think in a static perspective. Change is coming and that's inevitable. What we can do is push it in a certain direction. And we are we can be aided by external factors. So we have the responsibility to organize on the grassroots level and to reach the social fabric of Lebanese society to make sure that we have support that is accepted by people and not like considered the exception. So for example, in a village, we should not have 15 people supporting us in secret, we should have people supporting us openly and being part participating in our activism as part of their social habits. How do you do that, though, if supporting you openly means that maybe their cousin doesn't get a job? I agree. This is really a very big concern. But don't forget that we're living in the time of austerity in the public sector. As we, we talked about the budget last week, clientelism is not sustainable, right? And state jobs as a, a tool for, cli for clientel support will not be sustainable because the government has frozen recruitment, right? They're not employing new people. Well, they've frozen it until 2022. Oh, what happens in 2022? The elections. Yeah, of course, of course. But if we, if we look at it at the policy on the long term, as you mentioned last week, this will mean that the, the public sector will be cut dramatically right the size of it so what we know is that most probably in 20 30 years half of the people who are loyal to political zaims because of these state jobs would be in the same situation okay this is sad because people have less state jobs and they have basically less employment continuity but on the other hand politically this means that a lot of people will be free to stand against these politicians because they will understand that this promise of a job 
is not something that will go on in the future and is something that is basically a broken promise. So they can join us. They will have more freedom to do so, less chains around them. And another thing is that really, the, the con- in terms of consciousness, a lot of people support the idea that we should change this, this uh, political system. And what the, our responsibility is to kind of put a very serious vision for the country to tell people what we want to do with the country after we win it because we are trying to take over power and we want to tell people what exactly we're trying to do with that power this is one of the main things that we can do because it's not difficult of course it requires money and a lot of time a lot of time is spent in our group and in some other groups creating you know content or creating ideas and trying to change public opinions on things but otherwise how do you do politics And if we don't take this seriously as something that we can achieve and we will achieve, if we don't put, for example, a specific target of support of people who are members in the next few years, etc., we cannot do this. But I believe that now is the time where these, you know, ideological, these policy lines are being drawn, that in the next five or ten years, we will see more and more parties rising in Lebanon, more and more political groups with their own visions. And then we will have an infrastructure that can accommodate a lot of people. So this is a positive direction. I'm hopeful that this is where we're going, but we'll have to see. Okay, so the way I understand you, and correct me if I'm wrong, basically what the independent actors need to do is they need to do two things, set out policy, what they believe in, stake out those positions on the big issues, and then also do the -the on-the-ground grassroots organizing recruiting people to the cause, explaining them why this is important and why they should believe and join you. And if you do those two things, then at some point in the future, there may be opportunities that arise unexpectedly or expectedly that then you can capitalize on because then you have that infrastructure put in place. That's exactly what I mean. All right. Well, I I, I don't know if I fully believe that, but <laughs> but uh, I, I, I do think that's a good argument. Yeah, and, and 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 thanks also for that explanation of things. Uh, I learned a whole lot. I'm sure that uh, a lot of the people listening will learn a lot, a whole lot. Um, as for us personally, we're off for the next couple of weeks. Whew! Finally, <laughs> time to relax. But we will be back uh, three weeks from now with another episode of the podcast. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan, and this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. <laughs> Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.